Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting November 27, 2015, we focus on fighting ISIS, the self-styled Islamic State, following its terror attack on Paris. Our guest is a New World Policy blog columnist, Jonathan Power. His debut post argues that bombing is not the answer. We'll also point out top features in the WPJ Fall issue. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. La France est en guerre. France is at war. Les actes commis the vendredi acts soir à Paris in et Paris près du Stade de France on, uh, sont des actes de guerre. Friday evening, these are Ils ont fait acts of war. ISIL is the face of evil. Our goal, as I've said many times, is to degrade and ultimately destroy this barbaric terrorist organization. Rhetorically, there was a dramatic gap between French President François Hollande's angry declaration of war after the Islamic State's Paris massacre and U.S. President Barack Obama at the G20 session in Antalya, Turkey, again repeating his policy of slow but steady degrading of the IS, ISIL, or ISIS. Practically speaking, though, both leaders were mainly depending on stepped-up airstrikes and calls for more unified ground support from regional allies that is yet to materialize. But bombing the Islamic State is not the answer, writes New World Policy Journal blog columnist Jonathan Power in a debut post under that headline. Nor, he says, is a massive invasion, no matter what the nationality of boots on the ground. A longtime foreign affairs commentator for the International Herald Tribune, Power is also author of Conundrums of Humanity, the big foreign policy questions of our day. On the day after the alleged mastermind of the Paris massacre was reported killed, we talked about larger strategy against the Islamic State for this podcast. Jonathan Power, welcome to World Policy on Air. Well, it's very nice you invited me. With critics of President Obama calling for more aggressive U.S. leadership and military commitment of its own, you remind us of how many military interventions have bogged down or gone awry, most memorably in Vietnam, Iraq, Lebanon, Libya, and Afghanistan, for both American and Russian forces in that last instance. And that's only the tip of the iceberg, according to a recent Harvard University study. What did it find? Two professors did research over a long period of time going right back into history, uh, right back to uh, um, the mid-16th century, I think, uh, to the present day, and they found that more than a thousand military interventions had failed. Uh, The only two major ones where there was success were World War I and World War II, And we know uh, what devastation that wrought, both on the enemy and uh, on um, the Western side, the Allies side. So it's hardly something one wants to repeat. In modern times, of course, the Vietnam War was uh, probably, not probably, definitely the worst defeat in American military history. Going to more recent times, you had the second Iraqi uh, intervention by uh, President George 
W. Bush and Tony Blair, the Prime Minister of Britain. That went very badly wrong, and uh, the legacy of that is one of the um, galvanizing forces that uh, led to the birth of uh, the Islamic State, IS, or ISIS, as some people call it. Uh, you have Afghanistan, which was triggered by 9-11, and that was supposed only to be an effort, a bombing effort primarily, to get rid of um, Al-Qaeda uh, personnel who were sheltering among the Taliban. That was done many, many years ago, and yet America is still engaged in what has turned out to be the longest war in America's history. And so that brings us forward to the present day, uh, where many people uh, are pushing um, and I suppose it, uh, President Hollande of France is also pushing for Western uh, military engagement on a big scale. Now, Hollande hasn't talked about boots on the ground, but uh, his rhetoric seems to suggest that that's what he wants. I don't know what he's saying in private. Um, so we're on the threshold of a new intervention. I hope it won't happen. I think it would be counterproductive. I get the feeling that President Obama has his own deep, deep reservations. Given the lesson that Afghanistan should have taught both Washington and earlier the Kremlin, do you see some irony in each getting more involved in Syria uh, against the Islamic State and some experts even suggesting joint U.S.-Russian military operations against ISIS. Well, this is the talk, and uh, just a few days ago, uh, President Putin of Russia told his military chief of staff to work with uh, the French uh, military, in particular with the na Navy in the Mediterranean, in their mission um, against IS. So, de facto, uh, a Western-Russian uh, uh, military link-up has already happened. Uh, we know, too, that uh, some weeks ago, the United States and Russia worked out a system so... Um, to some extent, the bombing flights would be coordinated to avoid any accidents like planes bumping into each other high up in the sky. Um, I wouldn't be surprised uh, from uh, what has been said on both sides um, that, uh, that a formal alliance, not with a piece of paper, but uh, by a diplomatic handshake will uh, seal a cooperative venture between uh, Washington and Moscow and involving France. It can't involve Britain, as um, I should say in parenthesis, because Prime Minister David Cameron can't get the votes in the House of Commons to support such a move. Along with mission failure, you note the cost in treasure and blood, especially innocent life in Iraq, for example, and now against the Islamic State, ISIL, ISIS, uh, compared, say, with the, the death toll in Paris. Well, of course, um, this is part of European civilization. Uh, 
the wellspring of American civilization. So even though the numbers by Middle East standards are very modest, 130 deaths, uh, compared with what goes on in the Middle East, like during the Iraq War, 200,000 um, civilians uh, are estimated to have died. But this is under an understandable reaction. This is our civilization. Uh, it, we feel it's a direct attack on all of us in Europe and uh, North America uh, uh, and uh, Australia and Japan and so on. So it's understandable why we, to some extent, discount um, the deaths on the other side of the fence. On the other hand, in fairness, in honesty, by any kind of moral measure that we want to live by, closing our eyes to the deaths that are caused by these present-day air attacks of innocence, including children, is not the right thing to do. But it's done and is being done, and if the war is stepped up, which many uh, are arguing for, then the number of civilian casualties will rise and rise and rise and head towards the 200,000 mark, uh, which, was the which is the legacy of the war in Iraq. Your post also warns against conflating evils of the Islamic State and the civil war against Syrian President uh, Bashar al-Assad. In fact, you say IS stems more from the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Say more about that. Yeah, they're, they're very distinct in the causes of these two um, God Almighty conflicts. Um, the Iraq war was triggered uh, by two things, the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein, uh, that the West uh, hated, and President George W. Bush had a particular visceral hatred for the man because he said, um, probably rightly, that Saddam Hussein had tried to kill his father, the earlier uh, president of the United States. Then there was also the fact uh, that Washington said it was convinced, and so did London, that there were weapons of mass destruction uh, in the armory of Iraq. So this was the reason for this for the Iraqi war, and that has, in its turn, produced the personnel, <coughs> the senior personnel who run IS the disaffected uh, Ba'athist officers who at one time supported Sudan Hussein, who are Sunnis, uh, one, uh, one wing of the um, Islamic religion, who feel particularly persecuted by the Shiite government in Iraq. It is they who have uh, formed the uh, the backbone of IS. So that's the pedigree of IS. Uh, the turbulence in Syria was triggered by the Arab Spring. In fact, it was triggered by a bunch of school children who decided to stage a protest against Saddam Hussein. 
And the police cracked down on these kids and gave them a, a vicious walloping. And I think, if I remember right, put them in jail for a while. Um, the people in the local town got mad, and that triggered a series of non-violent protest marches against Saddam Hussein and against police brutality. And uh, they mounted every day, every day. And then what often happens in non-violent movements, they got Ill infiltrated by militants who started to use force against the police and the authorities. So uh, the anti was upped and the military uh, and the... Um, the military and the police uh, clamped down further and used tougher and tougher tactics. And then the militants became more charged and got more of their own weapons and pushed aside the nonviolent uh, leadership. And that's, this is how the insurrection began. Uh, it's a totally different history. But didn't rebellion against Assad give Islamic State time and space to put down its roots? Well, you could say that um, Assad, the president of Syria, uh, was very preoccupied, obviously, first and foremost, with the rebellion in his own country that developed into a civil war. Uh, that's understandable, but he always was worried about ISIS, uh, IS and its potential. And when... Uh, Al-Qaeda, the organization and its offshoots, of which IS is one, uh, began to turn uh, towards uh, Syria in support of the Sunni mass movement, which is against the Shia governments and the Alawite allies of the Shias, of which Assad is a member, then uh, the conflict spread that way to, to, to the east. And uh, so now Assad is fighting on both fronts. Some say there have been some uh, sort of secret behind doors agreements between Assad and these uh, Al-Qaeda um, IS militants over things like oil supplies. But I think if they have, and I, I don't think there's that much proof, I, I, I don't think it amounts to very much. In the debate with uh, Russia and Tehran, uh, Russia, uh, Moscow and Tehran, over uh, some sort of a continuing role for Assad, do you think uh, we could grit our teeth and uh, live with uh, at least some more time with him the way we, we live with the often harsh royal rule in, uh, rule in Saudi Arabia and, and indeed Saudi support for extremist schools and activities uh, around the region? Well, if you want to measure the regime of the Assads against Saudi Arabia, um, in many ways, I'm not saying in every way, and I'm being a bit provocative now, in many ways, Assad's uh, Syria uh, comes out with a better score. Uh, for example, um, it's a secular government. It, it, uh, yes, it's, it's most of its country, uh, most of the people of Syria are Islamic. Uh, most are uh, Shiite orientated, but it's a very tolerant society. Uh, religion is not part of the uh, 
the government. The government is entirely secular. Um, the religious uh, fanaticism, um, the religious evangelism of Saudi Arabia it has been one of the determining factors in the rise of al-Qaeda, the rise of, of IS, the militancy among uh, young Islamic uh, people across the Middle East because they funded uh, preachers, they funded mosques that had this militant message of the Wahhabis. Uh, in the case of Afghanistan and uh, al-Qaeda, if not the government, and even that is, uh, uh, we're not sure about, certainly rich Saudi Arabians have been allowed to get away with supplying funds for guns and so on. So it's um, a case could be made uh, that uh, Assad has been a better friend to the West than has been Saudi Arabia. If you ask me how many people have been executed in both countries, and I'm talking now about civilian crimes, I think Saudi Arabia is much worse than Syria. I'm talking about before the conflict, before the civil war. Should we tolerate him after he's smashed uh, whole cities? And should we tolerate him after his barrel bombing, which has led to families being destroyed and the innocents being destroyed, children being destroyed. Can we make it up with this man? After all, Saudi Arabia hasn't done anything like that. It's a, basically a peaceful country. Well, this is a very difficult question to answer, but uh, as an interim step, we may... Uh, the next 12 months have to live with Assad while we deal with uh, IS. We'll see. Uh, uh, then that begs the question, <clears throat> how do we deal with IS? And as you know, I have my own. Well, yes, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the, the better alternatives you see to ground war and bombing of IS, starting with sanctions. What kind and against whom, including Saudi sources of financial support? Well, let's start with Saudi sources. Uh, really, the Saudi government has to stop this. It has to go out and arrest the people who are sending money uh, and guns and advice and so on. Uh, it must, its intelligence services must have a pretty good idea who they are. And then the, the, there must be an even more rigorous crackdown on banks. Uh, I know a lot has been done already, but that, that needs to be refined and extended to money exchanges. You have not just the formal, uh, well-known money exchanges like Western Union, who move money across borders very fast, but you have um, these um, private networks which are purely done on the word of honor uh, of the entrepreneurs. And say, for example, uh, in uh, the Middle East, uh, Pakistani and Bangladeshi migrant workers use these uh, systems all the time. Uh, 
So they have to be watched carefully and dealt with if they're uh, helping IS. And then you have the Bitcoin phenomenon, which, as you know, uh, goes by uh, on the Internet. And that is very difficult to please. Um, it's a technological challenge to, uh, to please. But let's put some of our best cyber minds at work to find a way to do that. So that's uh, when it comes to uh, uh, financial pressure. Uh, there's a lot being done, but there's a lot more to be done. You talk about uh, arrests, you talk about uh, passports and, and citizenship of uh, activists who are supporting IS. Yeah, well, I support President Hollande on what you said the other day. Um, uh, a lot of these uh, militants who, are, who live in Europe have two passports, say a French and a Syrian one, or a Swedish and a Lebanese one. Um, so he says... We, get, we, we should get them, we should cut off their European passport. Um, why should they have the right to come and go into our own countries? And if they just have only uh, a European passport, or British or French, uh, then that should, all, that should be taken away from them. Um, they will pay a price for this. Uh, we know the ringleader of this group, uh, that did the bombing in uh, Paris, actually managed to smuggle himself from Syria back into France without having to show his papers. Uh, and that's going to go on. But at least uh, it's some wall of defense if we, if we take away the passports. And people, these kind of guys, and, uh, and young women too, who've gone off to fight with IS, they want to come home to their families, a lot have already come home. And uh, if they can't see their families again, that's going to be a big price for many of them to pay. So that would hurt them. When you talk about uh, these continuing efforts to stymie uh, ISIS terrorism uh, afar, uh, while not exaggerating vulnerabilities there, how does that shape your view of France's extending its state of emergency efforts in Europe and the U.S. to ban Syrian refugees to keep out any terrorists who may be mingling among them? Well, as President Obama said the other day, uh, 3,000 Syrian refugees have come into America over the last decade, uh, many of them during uh, the war, the civil war that's been going on, and there hasn't been one incident of, of terrorism or violence among them. Uh, and you have to remember, you guys in the United States, Steve Jobs, uh, of, um, uh, had uh, a Syrian father who was uh, an immigrant in America. You have a long tradition of uh, taking in Syrians over decades. So why, why now when um, these people uh, are absolutely desperate and are fleeing uh, partly from uh, a turbulence that was... Um, uh, triggered to some degree by the United States. And uh, there are, of course, many 
um, non-Syrian refugees coming from the Middle East, uh, in particular Iraqis, that nobody seems to be talking about, but they're the direct consequence of the Western intervention in Iraq. So uh, I think uh, the United States should open its doors, like uh, parts of Europe have, in particular Germany and Sweden, and uh, take on a really large responsibility for, uh, uh, for refugees from both Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan. And meanwhile, keeping an eye out for those uh, European passport holders uh, who may have been self-converts and don't fall under the, uh, the definition of refugees. Uh, on the ground, now under control by the Islamic State, you outline a plan to get civilians out and then cut vital supply lines, a kind of modern-day siege. How would that work? Well, this is an alternative to a bombing strategy that I don't think will work. It will just radicalize um, the IS and cause a lot of disruption and won't probably defeat them. Uh, and the, even troops on the ground, which anyway nobody seems to seems at this stage prepared to engage in, uh, could lead to another long drawn out war like uh, Afghanistan or, or 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 Iraq. My idea is inspired to some degree about uh, the defeat of Napoleon. Uh, when he overran Russia and arrived at the gates of Moscow and was within sight, and he believed he was on the doorstep of taking over Russia, of conquering the capital and installing, installing himself in, in the Kremlin. And it all went wrong because the Tsar told his people, the whole city, which was maybe then had a population of something like a million, to evacuate the city and take with them all the food and anything that could be useful to the French troops. It was winter time. They took with them everything that could keep a person warm, like fuel, they fled the city and set it alight. And when Napoleon entered the city, there was nothing, not even a grain of wheat. Winter was settling in. It was the total defeat for Napoleon, and he had to retreat fast, losing many of his troops on the way back to France because of the depth of the uh, East European Russian winter. I believe that if we had a policy, the Western world, of working on the ground with local urban um, agglomerations, which haven't yet been occupied by IS, and persuade them, like was done in Moscow to leave their city, leave their town, and head for refugee camps in neighboring Jordan or Turkey, and take with them, as the Muscovites did, anything that might be useful to IS. And then it would have to be organized that the water was cut off, the electricity was cut off, 
the mobile phone, cell phone system was cut off and medical supplies would not arrive and so on. And we just wait them out. And the townspeople who have arrived in, a, say, a refugee camp in Turkey must be given a much, in order to attract them and make them want to do this, before their city has actually been invaded or bombed, the refugee camps must be made far more attractive than the present ones. At the moment, the refugees, the standards in the refugee camps under the authority of the United Nations and UNICEF and so on are going downhill because the money uh, that should be provided by members of the United Nations is not being as forthcoming. They're not meeting their promises of financial support. So in the refugee camps, food and medicine and schooling are being cut. Well, you're not going to attract, attract people out of their towns if, if that's how you run the refugee camps. But if all this could be made to work well, then probably within a month or two, IS would clear out of uh, the town they've laid claim to. Uh, because what would be the point of hanging on to it? And they would have nothing, and no contacts, no water, no food, no medical supplies. They wouldn't last long. So this is, uh, and they would have to melt back into the desert. Um, and this would be uh, a way of dealing with the problem. Of course, there's no magic wand, but I think it would help. How does that plan create an acceptable power able to step in, uh, provide stability and sufficiently fair and effective governance uh, to forestall another religious or secular revolt? Well, this we have to come. We come back to some of the points in your questions made earlier that we have to get these towns up and running again and get the authorities in Iraq or Syria uh, to take over, or the Kurdish, Kurdistan, to take over their responsibilities. Uh, uh, and um, they, they are the de facto, uh, the, the powers that be in Iraq for all of their deficiencies, and likewise in Syria, they are the powers that be, and it's their territory for the moment, and uh, they have this uh, responsibility. So these towns, once IS have decided to leave them alone because they can't conquer them, must go back into the hands of the civilian authorities of those two states. What religious ideology that creates converts, even terrorists, far afield, especially in immigrant communities that are isolated from the culture and economy of, of their home countries? Does it just safely vanish, or is that another field of combat along with hard and soft targets in those home countries? But again, I'm sorry to say the first part of your question uh, got fussed over. The line wasn't so good. What about the ISIS religious ideology that creates converts, even terrorists, far afield, especially in immigrant communities uh, uh, far away, isolated from the cultures and economies of the, of the countries where they have uh, taken root? Does it just safely vanish? No, it won't vanish. It's there, uh, but uh, it's a very small minority. And uh, in France, which has the biggest number of Muslims, um, 
surveys have been done and show that it's only like 40% of the people who, adult people who actually uh, go to the mosque, um, they're uh, sort of silent Muslims, as it were. Maybe they have their private beliefs, but they don't, uh, they don't go to communal prayers or, or make an effort to have some attachment to the mosque. They are, in other words, being secularized. Um, but both in, uh, in France, in Germany, in Sweden, in Britain, where there are these Islamic communities, You've got uh, local religious uh, leadership in some of the mosques that uh, is very close to uh, incitement in their sermons, if not uh, fully-fledged incitement. There have been crackdowns on these. There need to be more. And there needs to be a Muslim-led effort to... uh, re-educate the young people who get touched by this kind of message, either from the iman in the local mosque or, of course, through the web. Um, this is, in my own country, in Britain, uh, this is being done thanks to very good leadership uh, in the Muslim Council, uh, which advises the government on the one hand and also does this kind of social outreach on the other. And I believe they have the same kind of thing going in France. And you need more of this, more effort. Um, the problem will never go away, but it can be contained. After all, uh, before this Paris, it has been a long time since the last uh, awful terrorist incident which happened in uh, Spain on the eve of the general election when uh, over 200, was it 300 people were killed when terrorists uh, blew up uh, a train. And that was, uh, oh, eight years ago. Before, just before that, there'd been the bombing of the London bus. And then Quite a number of years before that was 9-11. And uh, so we mustn't um, exaggerate uh, the number of militants and the damage they can do. But you think that if uh, the Islamic State as a physical being, to the degree that it is today, uh, if it disappears, then the ideology loses force and uh, it may be easier uh, for the uh, moderates, the nonviolent uh, followers of a, of a, of a great religion uh, to, uh, to further diminish the ideology and the, uh, and the cause to action that, uh, that we see today? Well, I think there's a great urge among the worldwide Islamic community to do this. Um, most uh, Muslims, by an overwhelming majority at the time of 9-11, uh, felt the al-Qaeda uh, gang were, were despicable and in no way represented their religion. You also have to recall that both with al-Qaeda and with present-day IS, ISIS, that most of the people who get killed are Muslims, by far. Uh, So there is a great urge among uh, an enormous uh, number of Muslims, um, well over probably the 98% mark, who want to get away from all this violence. And um, given uh, 
pacification or defeat or whatever one wants to call it uh, of um, IS, just as al-Qaeda was effectively defeated and isolated, then I will think you will see um, Muslims really uh, fighting to get their religion uh, back on the rails. Jonathan Power, thank you. It was a pleasure. New World Policy Journal blog columnist Jonathan Power, based in Sweden, was a longtime foreign affairs commentator for the International Herald Tribune. His recent book is Conundrums of Humanity, The Big Foreign Policy Questions of Our Day. And his debut post on the WPJ website is headlined, Bombing the Islamic State is Not the Answer. Featured in the WPJ Fall Issues Food Fight section, you'll find articles on smaller, smarter micro-farming, on proposals for preventing today's massive food waste and loss, and on nationalism, cuisine, and controversy. And listen next week when our podcast provides an inside view of Russian President Vladimir Putin's not-so-secret war with the Internet, domestic and global, from Andrei Soldatov, editor of the Agentura.ru website, covering the Kremlin's secret services. His article in the WPJ Fall issue is headlined, Rusnet on the Offensive. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Online News Editor and Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>